0: Before we start, I have a quick word from this episode's sponsor. The University of Nevada, Las Vegas, invites artists to apply for the Fall 2023 Masters of Fine Arts Program in Art. The three-year program, with an emphasis on creative practice, offers 24-hour access to private studios, graduate assistantship funding, and opportunities to engage with a dynamic roster of visiting artists, all within the unique context of Las Vegas. We welcome artists from diverse backgrounds who want to participate in the dialogues within contemporary art and culture and the creation of powerful sensory experiences and shared knowledge through art making and exhibition to apply by February 1st, 2023. More information about the program and how to apply at unlv.edu slash art. Hey everyone, welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, C1 Chong. Hey everyone, happy Lunar New Year. It is the year of the bunny, so to all those bunnies out there, I wish you the best and most prosperous year. I was busy these past few days transferring my visa in Hong Kong. Lots of changes happening as I will be moving north an hour to Guangzhou in a few weeks. But anyway, enough about me. I have a wonderful guest to introduce today Yamu Wang, an artist interested in examining subjectivity and its construct often informed by queer discourses, by using her personal experiences and found cultural materials as case studies. Yamu mainly works with language, both as media and subject matter, in part because it conditions her very being. She received a BA in Western and Chinese Literature from the National Taiwan University and an MA in Fine Arts from Zurich University of the Arts. Yamu also served as a fellow in the Home Workspace Program from 2019 to 2020 at Ashkal Alwan, the Lebanese Association for Plastic Art. I met Yamu through an online art residency called Artists for Artists, and she was one of the many wonderful connections I made during that time. Our conversation here took many interesting turns as we explored ideas of an Asian diaspora Practice versus theory, stepping outside oneself and why we do art. So sit back, relax, and happy new year.
1: Yeah, but still you feel you're still somehow connected to them in some ways. And-
0: yeah. Yeah, the familial bonds, right? Those are it's like yeah. a you know, strange connection. Yeah. You know, so I think for the listeners out there, Yamu and I met through a zoom online arts <laughs> gathering you know one of the things that i think was really interesting so you know i we were we, we had a constant conversation about our own work where we introduced each other within a like this sort of zoom art gathering mm-hmm. called artist for artists workshop and uh, you know we continued our conversation you know after these workshops and i think one of the interesting things that I found that made me, again, rethink, constantly rethink, again, my positioning in terms of language and this sort of Western hegemonic way of thinking. We both accidentally, I guess, at the same time read The Agony of Eros by Byung-Chul Han. And we had this sort of interesting conversation about the the book, and I think that opened up a lot of different ideas into power structures of of language and information as well as this idea of of home and those are some of the things that i was hoping that we could eventually work our way through uh okay. yeah but i guess before we kind of dive into that i was curious if you could you know quickly talk a little bit about yourself your background and how you got interested in you know language as a method to Talk about art and your practice.
1: Um, hi, everyone. I'm Yamo and uh, I'm now in Taipei and uh, it's 10.39 Sunday here mm-hmm. in the morning. <laughs> I grew up in Taiwan and first started literature here after working for, I think, one or two years as a freelancer in the cultural sector, in theater, movies, and as such. I went to Berlin, Germany to study visual anthropology in master. And uh, I only did it for one semester to have my artistic come out. Mm. I think I'm, yeah, I, I put it in this way because uh, I don't know, when I was in Taiwan, I couldn't imagine myself to be in a, because on one hand, I feel I just probably not talented enough. And on the other hand, it always has an image like uh, artists are starving and uh, it's difficult to earn your livings through art. But when I was in Berlin, like uh, it somehow there's a I just saw there's uh, so many different possibilities or how you can function as an art practitioner. So that was the point that I feel okay. Probably I should just be honest to myself and do whatever I feel I probably need to do. Otherwise, I'll just feel regret really afterwards. So I quit the anthropology studies and uh, started the application process in art school so I feel at that point it already it's already a decision that I made or choice I made that uh, I want to search for alternatives but after spending some time in Germany that I also realized Germany actually they're very big in terms of the EU uh, like Germany is a big country and Taiwan is a small one (laughs) so I feel like uh, if I want to search for references maybe there are a lot of things that uh, I feel it's difficult to to get a parallel or to take them as an example or model. And also during the application process that uh, I had uh, personal interviews in different art schools. So when I visit Zurich and uh, I like the professors there. Yeah. So, yeah, that's why I moved from Berlin to Zurich and uh, stay basically five years there to complete my art study.
0: So you speak German
1: never good enough <laughs> oh, okay. but a bit I think I can function I can function a bit but now like I moved back to Taiwan for more than two years now so yeah a lot of things lost
0: yeah but when you went to school at Frey University and then following that at Zurich was the yeah. method of of learning German or English
1: uh, it was German program
0: oh, okay so you pr- you have to be pretty good then right
1: um, uh, <laughs> I think I can understand a lot, but uh, yeah. in terms of speaking or writings, I basically function in English.
0: Oh, okay, okay, okay.
1: But it's still tricky that uh, I speak a lot of English in Europe or like in German-speaking countries, but uh, especially in Berlin. Yeah. But at the same time, I feel like kind of speaking my own English or my own language. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because it's never uh, like English speaking country or English speaking context, but still. So
2: yeah, yeah And I yeah. guess
1: that's also part of the reason that why I'm perhaps not to say interested in language, but somehow like they're a situation for me to tackle. Okay. So function in this way. Yeah.
2: Right, right. Yeah.
1: And also uh, just to mention that I think it's also interesting that in Switzerland there are four official languages. So like uh, for example, if someone from German speaking areas and someone from Italian speaking areas and they don't if they don't speak the language of the other, which is also official languages, they probably speak in English.
2: Right, right.
1: So and also you know, like in German speaking areas like Zurich or Basel, like the Swiss German is still different from high German. Yeah. Official or standard language in Germany. So like there are so many different layers. Yeah. yeah. So when you talk about identity, if you want to stress about your local identity as a Swiss person. Yeah. And like some politicians like intentionally speaks with Swiss accents, even when they are saying like high German. So I don't know. For me there's like Joe's just, just so many different layers. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of tell your interest in this. Like I was reading through some of your writings. I was reading, you know, your Between the Writing and the Written, which was a text that you as I understand it, you read for a performance and and served as a sort of art piece in itself. Yeah. And I mean, like some of the things that I found really interesting, like your analysis of the A4 paper And how the standardization from this, I didn't, I didn't know this, right. But the A4 paper was standardized by a group of German, I guess, organization to create a standard for paper and then was then further codified by the ISO, right. Um, And so thinking about that in terms of standardization, you know, I think I also heard a lot about that when I was visiting Basel, right, this idea of high German and, to even have this category, right? To say that it's like high German, right? I, I don't know if it translates out what the feeling of those words, the texture of those words are in German, but like, you know, if I were to translate that to like high English, right? There's this uh, weird hegemonic way of, of language yeah. to, you were to kind of have that classification, right? High, high English.
1: Yeah. I think it's also, it's, always kind of like offensive to a Swiss person, like when I speak <laughs> yeah, and then sure. the TV has to give them subtitle in German, even though in they're already it, speaking German. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, and the other thing that I was thinking a lot about, at least, I don't know if you know the, uh, the book Dicty by Teresa Hakyung Cha. Mm-hmm. It just kind of came to my mind because she also uh, deals with language, you know, with <laughs> her Korean slash French slash English tongue. And the book kind of breaks down the language in a way that's sort of, you know, nonsensical, but also in a a beautiful way, kind of how she is trying to interpret the world by living in these three different languages in a sort of really beautiful way. But yeah, so I guess, you know, thinking about that you know, how did you first approach your art projects? And I'm curious, the development of your work into, you know, at least the later works that I saw, some of the adjectives I kind of thought of was this sort of like ethereal, maybe sort of invisible sort of feeling. You have a lot of like pieces with text that are white on white walls. Uh, You have Mm. pieces that sort of disintegrate, like you had... Those tablets that kind of dissolves in air.
1: Yeah.
0: And you know, how does that how did that sort of develop?
1: I feel it's easier to see them as a trajectory when I see them <laughs> from the vintage point of where I am standing now.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: In that process of development, I feel it's it came more intuitively. Uh-huh. But I guess something I can say is I remember clearly when I first arrived in Zurich that I feel kind of a sense of deprivation mm-hmm. because literally there is no smell in the air.
2: Uh-huh. Okay. For example,
1: if I, because I, when I, I grew up in Taiwan and my body, I feel I remember a lot of smells or odors yeah. in the air, probably because of the humidity. Yeah, And uh, it's a different type of smell in Berlin.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: It becomes more continental. But when I when I first came to visit at Zurich, I feel the air somehow smells neutral, or there's no smell at all. Hmm. And it also somehow corresponds to the ideology of neutrality of how Switzerland plays
2: mm-hmm. in the
1: political regime. Mm-hmm. And that's neutrality or standardization. So, like, why cube thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, for example, the Swiss design as a model, like the typeface. What's the typeface? Is it Helvetica? Yes, thank you. <laughs> also, it's also kind of like, uh, okay, you read the word, but you don't read the letters itself. Uh-huh. So, at that point, I feel, wow. Well, what does that degree zero or like neutrality, mm. what is it? Yeah. Yeah. So that's why there's a white on wide, and all this standardization and like accent uh, digression, like this kind of gap.
0: Right, right, right. And what was the, I guess I'm curious, what was your reception of, of your way of tackling language while you were in, in Zurich?
1: Can you put the question different or maybe more specific so that I can understand? You know?
0: Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, so I'm thinking I'm thinking about it in terms of, I guess, from my perspective, you know, I guess when I think about language and then I present it within an American context, there's always this sort of exotification of it as if like the language is something that the main white audience isn't as concerned with, although Switzerland, it might be a little different since it's surrounded by uh, a region that has, as you said, four different official languages, right? And uh-huh. you're co- you're coming from language also from a non-native speaker of all four of those languages, right? Uh-huh. Uh, including the, the major one being English, right? And so I'm curious if there was, uh, you know, what that reception was like, and you know, for you. Figuring this out, like basically in real time, Mm -hmm. thinking about language as a means to understand the world, I guess.
1: Maybe this is only a response, not the direct answer. Yeah. But uh, the first thing came to my mind was a lot of people asked me why I didn't work with Mandarin Chinese. Uh-huh, because they always have a beautiful size and uh, yeah,
0: the calligraphy and even all though that.
1: People, yeah even though people don't understand but still beautiful and uh, it fits me like uh, as my I don't know identification as an yeah. Asian woman, but I feel I was quite clear that if I work with Chinese then it means it still need to go through the process of translation hmm And I feel my work has a lot to do with translation, literally, or on the level of cultural translation. Right. Or probably the impossibility of it. Right, right. So if there's any strategies or if there's any purpose of doing all this, I feel it probably basically just about um, dealing with myself Mm -hmm. inside that environment. Yeah. And through doing myself as a case study. Uh Uh-huh. And I hope there's something bigger behind, like through language itself.
0: Yeah. You know, the the feeling I get is sort of a a tense calmness when I was looking at the work from at least the, Mm. you know, the portfolio that I was able to see. And then also your writing as well. I I really enjoyed writing you. that, that you have, you know, I'm jealous of that, that pathos that you kind of give or the feeling that you give, you know, and then there's, there's always this sort of undercurrent of tension that's hard to describe. I mean, and I, you know, I think of that, I think the first text you sent me was the short story by Murakami Carnival. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. I feel like Murakami's yeah. work, you know, at least the, the English translations of the text, there's always this unspoken tension between Mm -hmm. the characters that bubbles to the surface in very, very subtle ways. I thought that, you know, I felt that also when I was watching, you know, the two latest films that were made from a short story, right? There's Mm -hmm. Burning and also Drive My Car.
1: I haven't watched them, actually. How was
0: them? I really enjoy Drive My Car, but I would definitely say it's a very slow movie. Okay. <laughs> My parents saw that and they're like, why'd you like yeah. that movie? There was a, something about the tension and yeah, I felt like it was like a really slow, delayed, prolonged payoff towards just understanding the characters. Mm-hmm. And also he mm-hmm. played with language in interesting ways because the main character, he, he's like a scriptwriter or a director for plays. And he invited a bunch of international actors this is within the movie and then when they read the play they all read the play mm-hmm. in their native language so like he'd be speaking yeah. in japanese and you'd have i forgot all the different languages that were spoken but they all spoke in their own native language when they were doing the play reading right and so there's sort of this mixing yeah. up of language it's happening
1: mm-hmm. it just reminds me of the idea of latency Mm-hmm. it's something that you expose to light, but it takes some time for you to see the image. Yeah. But I feel maybe there's also something to do with how you actually um, tell a story.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, for example, I'm thinking the movie In the Mood for Love. Oh, yeah. By Wong Kar wai yeah. Like, uh, actually, most of the thing, I think it's fabulated by the viewer's head, in the viewer's head. Yeah, yeah. Instead of directly saying, I'm the." F- Inside the film or inside the narrative.
0: Yeah. I've seen that film like I think five times, six times.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and it somehow triggers different parts <laughs> yeah. of yourself or like how you actually think of these two um, protagonists inside of films. Yeah. I don't know if I would describe this as a strategy, but somehow I feel this communication mode is somehow different in Asia or like in Europe, I guess.
0: How would you describe that difference?
1: I feel it's very difficult to describe this difference, not to fall into any
0: stereotype. Stereotype,
1: Stereotypical, yes. (laughs) But,
0: uh, um... I mean, I ask because I think our intersection of this observation might be an interesting place to kind of ponder right because i'm coming from a i would say a very very western a viewpoint mm. you know i, I always say mm. every time i travel i'm made more aware of my americanness right yeah uh, in spite of in spite of so much of my work has been dealing with living as a chinese american and talking about what does that mean What is does this sort of asian diaspora mean and then you coming Mm -hmm. from someone who has studied quite a lot in in the west and also read a lot of western writings and you're telling me right this sort of idea of how do you yourself position your own ideas of being asian within a diasporic asian
1: maybe maybe just an example Mm -hmm. when i was in university i actually studied i first started with western literature okay and then after one year, I double measure in also to Chinese literature. So in the university, we only have uh, foreign foreign literature, which means uh, Western literature,
2: uh-huh.
1: and uh, also Chinese one. And at the end of the semester, basically our tutors or advisors would invite us has a dinner together. And uh, in the dinner with the Chinese literature, that basically like. The students, so especially female students, pour the wines or serve the dishes to the masters or professors here. Yeah, and also, of course, we address them as a professor. Right. And uh, in the dinners of the Western literature department, like uh, it's the total other way around. Like the professors here, like pour us wines, and yeah. of course, we address each other only by name.
2: Right, right, right.
1: So yeah, it's a different culture. Yeah, I think like this week I I was actually thinking a very criticalities and there was a resistance protest are somehow are quite strong these days or these years in the art field in the West at least and I was just talking with a friend the other night that um it's very obvious that. Uh, the female artists here in Taiwan, it's very underrepresented. Mm-hmm. But it has never been an issue here. But I also have to say that the way, how do you negotiate this issue? It somehow has been manifest in a very different sense compared to the West society. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I recognize this as an issue, but still, I don't want to be labeled as, okay, I'm somehow someone who studied in the West. So I have all these Mm -hmm. ideas to try to challenge the Taiwanese society. Right. Then what might be the way?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah.
1: And uh, we didn't have a clue yet.
2: Yeah.
1: Or like there's a lot of situations could be changed, but I feel people are just not yet in that mindset or people don't see problems in that way. Mm. But again, this could be a general mindset of the mainstream people. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Then the way we live has to be totally changed.
0: I think so, yeah. I mean, you know, I think part of the push, and this is again my... I feel like my Western way of thinking, but part of the push for all of these critical theories is an attempt, although many fail, is sort of an attempt to try to find these new meanings, right? Find these new Mm -hmm. ways of living. Of course, these are all like theoretical models, which are oftentimes at odds with practical models, right? You know, when I was telling you about my initial criticism of the agony of Eros, right? Mm -hmm. It was the reason I was, I was sort of pushing for like maybe other types of writers, you know, other than the typical Germanic white male ones was sort of like, (laughs) if. I was just thinking, right, cuz he, you know, the book is is about how to deal with love in this current age, right? Yeah. And it, it was sort of a it was sort of a romantic idea. He dealt with a lot of romantic ideas of what love was. But I felt like also in this present day, we are in a world that is so interconnected and globalized, right? Mm-hmm. So to me it felt weird that you wouldn't talk about that that interchange, interconnectedness in the present day. That that was sort of my because it wasn't like he was analyzing a love from a Germanic one, though it ended up being, but he was pushing for like a present day love and what that looks like. And to me, a present day love is one that is I potentially more globalized. I felt like it was a fun little book, right? It was like, what, 60, 65 pages of him basically having fun. Like he wasn't, you know, breaking down each philosopher. He was just like literally included, but clearly was his favorite philosophers of the time, right?
1: Yeah. Did you read his other books?
0: I didn't. I actually didn't know about him. Uh, until
1: okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: I think basically this is his writing styles. Yeah, like like short, concise, and uh, yeah. somehow highly personal. I would say. Yeah, and I can see the struggle or the challenge if you try to position him among all the other contemporary writers who deals with love. I feel I feel it's kind of putting him in the wrong box.
0: Okay, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean clearly, or the yeah, wrong, yeah. Or
1: the wrong basket. <laughs>
0: sure, sure, sure.
1: But I guess it's also about how we read from where we stand and uh, under which context. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think you wrote about this in your, in your Between the Writing. I think you had a really nice line where you're like, you were saying, I think you're talking about maybe in high school or I'm not sure the time frame wasn't too clear, but you were like, you know, you're reading these critical theories and these were like, you know, either in English, which was already difficult or a translation of these Western words within critical theory, mm-hmm. which may not mm-hmm. even make sense in the translation or much, so much is lost. And then you put down the book and then you kind of look up at where you're living and you don't see it because there's no there's no mm. grounding to how to place these ideas and words in an obvious fashion, at least. Right. And then I think what you just said earlier, which is sort of how, how does one even think about this without thinking that you are under the power of these sort of western ideas
1: i guess it also has something to do of my relation with theory in general that how those can help me or how can how i can use theory obviously i'm not going to be a theoretician or i guess i'm not going to be academics um and i remember my professor since schools that he's a theoretician and uh, he says like if there's any use of theory might be that it helps him to become a better person or think more yeah and then it has to go back to reality or in his daily life
2: Mm -hmm. yeah
1: and i guess it really takes time or a lot of practice or translation to actually make the theory works yeah or to be embodied. Yeah. So yeah, I guess there's a layer between the language of theoretical language to action. Or, but I guess like theory making itself, it's also act. And also, there's the other layer of okay, this is a Western theory and this uh, my Taiwanese life now. So how how do they connect?
0: Yeah, I mean, and I, and I can see. I mean, I saw that you also had an interest in autofiction, and I and I think autofiction at times tries to blur those those lines right and, and you know and, pera- yeah. and perhaps that's sort of what was the draw for the agony of eros which was that han is just sort of speaking in a very you know pretty highly personalized manner that, yeah. that, that you <laughs> yeah. don't often see in a lot of dense theoretical texts because i mean the book still i felt like was pretty dense right like it wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. an easy read you kind of had to already understand a lot of the ideas of the people and films that he was talking about and he didn't th- really explain any of it. He kind of was having fun with the diaristic thinking, right? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I felt like uh, I couldn't place until you start, you mentioned like, you know, Seth Price and Jutta Kurta. I actually haven't read those two. The ones I read were by mm-hmm. Ben Lerner and Chris Krause for their mm-hmm. autofiction. fiction. But yeah, I mean, I think those, those, this idea of kind of, you know, where's the self, where's the reality and interweaving certain types of intellectual thinking into a sort of diary, right. As a sort of way to put these things into practice.
1: I feel there's also something to do with economy in the sense that uh, I always feel I don't have much materials in my fridge, but I still need to cook and mm-hmm. uh, how I can somehow use those materials that I have more smartly, I don't know, or just make them work <laughs> and also I feel um, I feel insecure I guess there are certain levels of abstraction when it comes to theory, yeah. And uh, it somehow makes me not sure or insecure for something that is actually outside my body.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And uh, I guess this is something to do with the approach or method that I feel more secure with or that I feel I can actually grasp. Yeah. As something that I can hold in my hand. Right, right. But of course, that I guess I also question myself, like, uh, why I can't just step a bit outside of myself <laughs> and uh, looking into something bigger, like history, politics or something. Yeah. But I guess this is not like, uh, I mean, personal can be also political. Yeah. Or that's already a cliche, but but I feel when I choose the form of autobiography, it's not that I have other means of doing things in other way. Yeah. I guess back then at that point, I can only do things in this way. And it comes out to be autobiographical essays. But... Uh, I guess I would also like to challenge myself in trying different forms of writing or different approaches of understanding this world or understanding myself, but I guess I'm just not there yet. So on one hand, I feel, okay, I'm writing something that is highly personal, but on the other hand, I also there's a strong sense that I'm actually resisting to it. Yeah. That I don't want to do this a self exposure thing. I guess there's always a line that what goes to personal and what goes to private. And I've tried to make that line clear to me, but still how do you say something that I feel? Okay. I can say this because I know that I don't need to challenge myself. Why you know this?
0: I'm curious. What is there a writer that you are looking at that you wish yours was more like? You know, as you're talking about trajectory, what is it that trajectory going that you want it to go?
1: I actually haven't write for quite a while, or since I moved back to Taiwan. Because when I was in Switzerland or when I was in Beirut, like it's necessary that I speak in English. Otherwise, I don't have a language. Mm. People don't speak Mandarin Chinese there. Yeah. And now I'm coming back to an environment which people basically speak Mandarin Chinese and uh, they don't speak English now. Right. So who are my audience actually? What do I supposed to speak? Who am I speak to? Right. So I feel this is the struggle or like uh, there's a lot of new adaptations or reimaginations of myself again in the past two years. Yeah. So for me, it doesn't make sense to write in the way I wrote. Hmm. And also it's also impossible for me to write in that way because I feel before those writings like the address or the audience is very clear it's mm. western regime <laughs> yeah which i am not within or inside anymore
2: right right right
1: so what might be the trajectory <laughs> i guess i can say i feel language still plays an important part for my thinking but when it comes to art practice that uh, I wrote less and also I feel what I'm making now becomes more materialistic in a way that can also be shared by the local audience. Yeah. And also because after the pandemic, so I moved back to Taiwan in 2020, the March of 2020. Okay. And uh, since then I haven't flew anywhere. So it's a total different context and also environment that I'm situated in. Yeah.
0: So yeah, I mean, I also have not flown anywhere, and yeah, I mean, it's 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 definitely something to think about, right? And I think what you're talking about, audience, is definitely a really good question. I think about that too. I don't know who my audience is anymore, uh, and yeah, I don't know. I feel like as I get older, I think I always keep telling myself like, what's more important is somehow sustaining. Whatever your art practice is, is more important than finding the audience.
1: What do you mean? Or like, who do you make the art for? Well, maybe that's not the right question.
0: Yeah, that's a question all artists hate. <laughs> like, who's your audience, right? <laughs> but when I go to grad school now, right? When I went to grad school, I don't know what it was like for you, but the, the big gotcha question was like, who's your audience, right? You, you like, no, okay. like, you, you mm. need to figure that out now, so that you can sell. Mm.
1: Okay, I see. Maybe what I meant was slightly different. Okay. Or maybe the question should be why you make art.
0: Mm, that's a good question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I mean, if audience can be can be translated as a purpose. Yeah. Or like, who do you address, or yeah, what do you try to express, or why why you do this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's hard.
0: So why do you do this?
1: Um, I feel eventually it's about connection. Uh-huh. And when I think about connection, then it has something to do with the audience. Mm. I mean, for example, if I go to a show and somehow I see a certain word and I feel addressed or I feel understood,
2: mm-hmm.
1: even though there's no direct connections, but like there's no direct communications, but still, yeah. you know what a piece of art can do to you.
2: Yeah.
1: I feel it has stuff to do that I actually want to... Payback of what I already received through art.
0: I see. I like that.
1: And then also when I show my works, I can see some reactions, (laughs) those physical reactions. Yeah. And I know, and I know, okay, I made it. And I feel it's for these very, very rare moments, these moments of encounter. And so I actually do a lot of other things just to make this happen. But of course, like during the process, I question myself again and like, again, what if this not happened? And it's probably not going to happen. I don't know. Hmm. And uh, when it comes to receptions, for example, the portfolio that I share with you, like it was received well in Zurich. Okay. But it's not something, it's not something related or something that people can relate to for the audiences here in Taiwan. Yeah. As I said, I basically address the Western regime, at least in that portfolio. Right. It's not as palpable for the people here. Yeah. So, yeah, that's also kind of my self-doubt or confusion already for the past two years that, okay, so what I'm going to do now through art, who do I speak to?
0: I think it's difficult. I think it's, I mean... I think it's also difficult in the sense that a lot of the works that you showed dealt so with laser focus on language in a nuanced way, right? And I think that's different than, say, if you just made a painting, right? Yeah. You know, I think in some ways, right, you're talking about this line between personal and non-personal, but I would say the more specific you are, actually the more personal I feel like you get, and the more, the less pers- the less specific you are, the less personal you are, right? Like, I think I already gave that example at the workshop, but sort of like, if you think about like Jeff Koons as being the most liked artist within a general consensus of art and non-art people, it also holds mm-hmm. the least meaning, right? And then the more mm-hmm. meaning you put onto something, audience gets smaller but also gets more personal Mm. i mean i think about this a lot too right and and someone read Mm. my artist statement recently and they're like i had all this language Mm. about like telling my personal stories and like how personal stories Mm. is a way to kind of uh, invite viewers into my world and just just telling those stories is, is is sort of universal way of doing of universal way of communication you know but you know one of the responses was, was like it's such a western way to think that your personal story is so important right yeah. <laughs> i don't know yeah i mean i mean i think about that right telling these personal stories why
1: why why that person think it's a western way
0: in the sense of like
1: for example i, I have to say for example the form of autobiography or like this uh, personal or private photography, yeah. especially in photography. It's very popular in Japan, like just to say. so
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, I would agree in a sense, like this sort of like all about me sort of thing, mm-hmm. uh, I guess. I mean, when I, when I looked at the writing and I was looking at my own statement, it was, it was definitely very, it felt like more ego-centered. Mm-hmm. And I did like think about it, like if I could, change the language a little bit, you know? I mean, obviously... Mm -hmm. there not to say that it doesn't exist right like Mirakami I would say they're all basically biographies it feels like of himself being an awkward guy Mm -hmm. who this is the part I hated the most about Mirakami is like they're all about him these like disaffected men who like long for like these beautiful women and they just yeah he has too many awkward scenes of that but uh, but yeah you know I mean obviously it exists but I felt like I think a lot of also you know a lot of these the colonial um, and critical theory artworks they they're all also about like telling personal stories right and that's been a mode Mm -hmm. a modality of talking about one's relationship with the world as as a metaphor i would say for the larger geopolitical systems that these individual artists exist in right Mm -hmm. and i i feel like it seems like western mode of uh, tackling these issues Right.
1: So, what would be the ideal way to coexist or understanding your personal vulnerability and also your personal value in relation with other people? That is also very much valuable.
0: I don't know. No. <laughs> I, well, I like to, you know, I like the thing for me, part of the beauty of, of all these different ways of thinking is that there is everyone's trying to at least figure out a new way, right? I think mm-hmm. the, the possibility is that there is no real way that uh, the culmination of all these different methods will then add to something that collectively is is more powerful, than the individuals
1: just go back to that the comments of self-centered or big ego of the self in your artist statement i guess this is also something that i think a lot these days that i feel in asia or at least in taiwan that the harmony of a group is more it's very important
2: yeah mm-hmm. I know.
1: maybe the individual <laughs> individual perceptions of certain things yeah yeah and uh, i have to say for example like you don't you don't ask how are you in mandarin chinese yeah yeah i know and i feel that question is actually again and again ask you to think about yourself your personal well-being mm-hmm. like and it's just so common like you like you hear it like so many times a day like yeah. where
0: you where are you going and sort of like uh, what do you yeah. what are you in as 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 a more maybe you could say practical way but also uh, a f- method of asking that possibly includes a social dynamic right like if you have you mm. have you eaten slash do you want to eat together yeah. slash where are you going slash can i walk with you for a little bit or something like that right yeah.
1: Yeah, but what I wanted to say, I don't know, as someone who grew up here, like uh, when I first moved to Europe and uh, being asked of that question again and again several times a day, Yeah. at first I feel it's kind of like a challenge. It could still be a challenge now, like when you first asked me, how are you? Yeah. And I just told you, mm, I'm okay. Like it's very, <laughs> I don't know, um, <laughs> yeah. it's a very, very reduced answer because I don't, it's something that I still have to learn yeah. to just to say or to think about how am I? Yeah. And it's allowed to think about I mm-hmm. myself. So yeah. I feel it could also be an emancipation. Mm. for me to just think about myself as a person as an individual instead of some a rule or like a position inside a society inside a family or inside a group so i guess it's about balancing (laughs) yeah having living in the west for a certain period of time and just coming back from a like uh, encountering a lot of family members and those family dramas and how to position me as an individual within this bigger family society group east and west yeah yeah there's a lot of layers and I guess eventually I just need to find a way that I feel comfortable. Mm. But then it is from a position of I. Yeah. But I guess the same question you can also ask if I'm looking, watching at a Taiwanese film and how much do I relate? I think in general, like when you see art piece, like uh, this is the question that you can always ask yourself. It's less about the identity thing, I think. Mm -hmm. But of course, like what you are now interested in is more about like, okay, if the actors are all Asian bodies and uh, how does it go?
0: Yeah. Do you think it's a matter of patience or empathy? Sometimes when I think of this question of how relevant is it, right? I wonder if that question is only being asked because someone is being asked to imagine something that they're not used to without realizing that they already do that, right? So I think the pride and prejudice thing is interesting in the sense that like, if you actually think about it, the pride and prejudice culture is quite removed from anyone living in Asia, right? You're talking about a British society, Mm -hmm. not even present day British society. Mm -hmm. You're talking about customs of the rich, right? Their their Mm -hmm. means of living is far beyond what a person in in many parts of the world, you know, not to mention Asia, mm-hmm. is can imagine. But people have no problem identifying with that. You actually I don't think any you might not like the film, you might or book, you might not like the writing, but the criticism that I can't relate to that is much mm-hmm. more rare than mm-hmm. something that actually might be closer in terms of temporal time class but it's just because you know like the like you know i hear this a lot in china is sort of like oh i don't get the point of asian american perspective but it's actually closer i would argue
1: <laughs> i guess this also relates to your position towards the agony of arrows and uh, this can connect it's actually the same thing maybe yeah um, I feel I feel that film somehow expose certain side of the Asian American society that the Asian people usually have no idea of. Yeah. So when you see the struggle of uh, Asian American families in the states, yeah, it, I think it's actually something new. Yeah. You know, to the Asian people here. For example, those struggles of Black Lives Matters so or Stop Asian Hate. It's really not something directly related to the Asian people in Asia, let's say, for a lot of reasons. (laughs) Yeah. Because uh, this is not the struggle we face here. Right. It's a very different social structure. So I feel, okay, there's actually a lot of work to do to facilitate or improve the understanding between Asian and Asian American. Of course. Or like diasporic Asia in general. And I feel this is not something like those uh, colonial discourses or discussions, for example, we read in the context of Alpha, it doesn't help. And uh, it has to go through this conversation, direct conversation of what we are doing now, actually. Right, right. Yeah. But I think there's also another thing that uh, I want to mention is uh, I think race is established important issue in the West. But... The discussion of race i feel i feel there's another if tradition is not a critical world maybe there's another kind of custom of discussing race or different ethnicities or communities within the chinese discourse mm-hmm.
0: you know i think yeah. sometimes i think definitely a lot of the decolonial thinking often also forgets to talk about class as, as a type of hierarchy, right? But like Asian countries are all about hierarchy, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> And so, so these, these hierarchies, I would say manifests and intersects, you know, oftentimes with class and race, right? Like how dark skin you are, right? You know, like in Asian countries, you know, the darker skin implies that, you know, you're a laborer, right? And you worked out in the fields and Mm -hmm. there's all this push to have lighter skin, right? Which only, only got amplified with this idea of white skin from, from the West being imported as well. Right. Yeah. So I think it's there. Maybe just people aren't talking about it. You know, maybe it'll take a few decades. I'm not sure how long for these sort of ideas reveal themselves. You know, as as the world maybe gets more globalized, or at this moment it seems everyone's becoming more isolationist. Right?
1: I don't really know. Mm-hmm. I'm not say I'm not saying those discussions are not relevant to the situation here, but I. But I just wanted to point out like uh, I feel it requires a different ways of reading mm. of how I relate to those texts. Mm. And these kind of reflections and also layers doesn't necessarily go to the alpha discussion that we have. Yeah, yeah. In English. Yeah. Yeah. Because then it becomes very specific. Yeah. And another thing that I asked myself, like, it actually takes time for you to try to understand those discussions. Yeah. And I'm already those people who have like time to actually try to understand. Yeah. A lot of people, they don't really have the time or effort to join those protests or just try to understand what's happening on the streets. Yeah. Because it also requires certain conditions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe my question is simply put, is like, what might be the theory for public instead of the theory for elites, like cultural elites? That's
0: a good question. I guess a modern day theory for the public would be at Twitter, right?
1: Yeah, that was also what I was thinking. And uh, yeah, and you know, it's limit. But of course, there's also limit for any theoretical text. So,
0: yeah, I mean, they could also work in conjunction Right. Similar Mm -hmm. to like how every artist has a different style and way of tackling different issues, but the collective approach leads to a perhaps a wider reach than individuals. Mm -hmm. I think as we're winding down, you know, I guess one of the things we can kind of end with is sort of like thinking about sort of the uncertainty about the future of artists. And I'm just curious, mm-hmm. like where, how you see this uncertainty manifesting, you know, do you, do you think more people will kind of get away from or turn away from the arts? Um and maybe there's is a type of healing i'm not sure right you mentioned perhaps it's something that you wanted to return back to the community mm-hmm. how does one sort of exist as an artist in this uncertain future
1: maybe because what i'm doing now has nothing to do with reputations or like a financial income yeah so in a sense like uh, what whatever I do it's for myself not in a selfish way but because there's no social capital or capital yeah. <laughs> by doing art for me for yeah. now yeah yeah um and I don't want to argue if there's anything about pure purity or absolute it's not it's not where I want to go but but then I think about what might be the necessity Eesh. or what's the obsession or Where's the satisfaction?
2: Mm, Yeah.
1: And without that, I guess I wouldn't continue. But I guess uh, if I don't attempt to try to hold on this, then I wouldn't know who I am now (laughs) also.
2: Mm, mm.
1: Because it has already given me a lot. And I feel it's also kind of like a journey of self-exploration so by doing this i also understand where i am now so is it sustainable i guess i can always come back to that maybe in different forms or different ways but i guess it is yeah if i am function on this dimension
0: yeah yeah should we end on that i don't know
1: maybe thank you for you for giving me this opportunity to talk about all this
0: yeah yeah it's my pleasure thank you it's my pleasure too have these, you know, they're difficult conversations, right? I think the issue is, I think, it's sort of how, do, how does one bridge these different conversations? And definitely sometimes I feel like my podcast and similar kind of podcast can be like this echo chamber where the people are just mm. talking about the same ideas and... I don't have a problem with that for me, I think we also don't have the answer. We're we're still all trying to figure it out, right? Like, what does it mean to, I think the ultimate question that we are all trying to talk about is what does it mean for us to exist in this world that has the history that led us to where we are today still present? Right, and I think we all, as every individual society, has that history dictating how we live and how we relate to each other. You know.
1: Yeah, and also it serves as a reminder that uh, there are a lot of things that I haven't actually think through. Mm. So it triggers some desire mm. that uh, <laughs> I need to work a bit more on these things and these questions.
0: Yeah, Yeah. well, they're hard, right? And like you said, you need the time. It is also a privilege to kind of take the time to think about these things. And I think that's the hard part, right? I think a lot of these isolationist and nationalistic tendencies that you are seeing around the world is, I think, partially because it's the easiest way to think about it, right? It's easier Mm -hmm. to to have that kind of as a solution and i don't know if it's easy i don't think there's any easy solution so
1: yeah but i think it's also nice not to wake up with self-doubt so yeah i mean i know it's different layers if i can tangle this a bit better i think i'll feel myself a little bit better too yeah 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 so maybe there's just no separations yeah
0: yeah Alright Yamu Thank you so much For talking with me mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate it And thanks for taking the time
1: Thank you so much For this Yeah Invite Of course
0: <laughs> Yeah And I'll talk to you soon
1: Until next time Zaijian Zaijian Zaijian
0: Seeing Color Is recorded Edited And produced by myself Ziwon Chung Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show. And gives greater visibility for everyone on seeing color. Again, thank you so much for listening, and goodbye for now.